to take your Bible this morning to the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And while you're turning, let me just let you know that we have Chris and Mary Spitzer here with us. These are our missionaries to Alaska, and they are here with their family. I had the wonderful joy of meeting them on the way in this morning, and I know that uh, they will be here for just a few days. I think they leave uh, to head back on Wednesday. They got in uh, a little earlier this weekend, so we're so thankful they're here. Uh, Chris and Mary, where are you? Would you just hold your hand up? There we are, right in the back, back there, and uh, we're so glad you're here. Thank you for serving the Lord Thank you for uh, letting us have a part in uh, what you do for the Lord, and uh, we're so thankful that you could be with us this morning. Well, this morning we are beginning a new series uh, that will take us through the final section of the book of Ephesians. You know, as I shared with you when Pastor Jason was leaving, we had uh, some time together. We had a number of times together, and one of the things he asked me to do um, as he was leaving and as I was coming in was to finish the book of Ephesians. And it has been a great blessing to my own heart as I've been coming back into these texts and uh, allowing the Lord to just reshape my thinking from these texts. I remember preaching through the book of Ephesians back in 2003. And I began preaching through the book in a congregation where I was serving. And I remember how defining this book was for me, how shaping it was, how Uh, enlivening it was, what it did in my own thinking about the Christian life and about the community of faith that Jesus Christ, our Lord, leads our church. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to love going back to the book of Ephesians, but I had no idea. I had no idea what God would do in my own heart as you come back to very familiar texts. I decided that I was not going to just re-preach the messages that I prepared back in 2003 and 2004, and so I, I just went to the texts and prepared fresh messages, and then I went back and looked at those messages all these years later and thinking, how did I miss so much out of the text? So it's been a very rich study for me. I hope it's been for you as well as we've been making our way together through this amazing peace that God has brokered in the universe. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 9, when God led us into a mystery, a secret that he is now revealing through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And that secret has to do with an amazing thing that God is accomplishing through the life and the death and the obedience of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is to reunite, to regather all things, both in heaven and on earth, under the authority and under the good and righteous rule of his son, Jesus Christ. This was predicted, wasn't it, in Isaiah chapter 9, in that famous set of verses beginning in verse 7 and going all the way through verse 12, where we're reminded that God promised that to us a son would be given. And then he's named, he's given these amazing titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And then we're told that the government would rest on his shoulders, that his rule would be marked by righteousness and justice and peace, and that of that righteous rule, there would be no end. It's a stunning verse, isn't it? Thousands of years Later, we look back on that verse and realize that all of that is talking about an individual who was born 2,000 plus years ago 
in the city of Bethlehem, in the city of David, raised in Nazareth, and you know him as your Lord and Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. And Paul is unfolding the amazing thing that God has decided to do through Christ at just the right time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth this son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, made under the law to fulfill the law so that we could become the sons and daughters of God. And through his amazing obedience and through his voluntary sacrificial death, Ephesians 2 tells us that God brokered a peace. And we talked about that peace. We talked about shalom. We talked about the fact that the first time we encounter shalom in its full context is in Genesis 1 and 2 when God looks at what he has created and at the end of every creation day, the writer of scripture tells us that God saw what he had done and he saw that it was good. And that's not like God just looking down and going, you know, I, I actually did a good job today. That was, that was good. That's not, what, that's not what's in mind there. What God is saying at the end of every creation day is that this is exactly as it should be. There could not be an improvement on what I have done this day. This is exactly the way it should be. Things are shalom. That's the idea. And at the end of the creation week, The crowning moment of God's creation was when he brought forth a creature made in his own image. And the word for that in the Hebrew is Adam. He made man. He's talking about mankind. The glory of God's creation was mankind. And then as we saw the stunning beauty of the crowning of God's creation, mankind, The beauty of that, God says, was woman. The crowning act of God's creation was mankind. And the crowning thing that God ever brought out of man was woman. And he looked at all of this at the end of the creation week. And the scripture says he rested. And the idea of rest there is that there was nothing left to do. God had done everything he set out to do. And now he had set in place a process a beautiful, pleasurable, amazing process by which more image bearers would come into being so that they would fill up the earth and glorify him. And things would be shalom. But by the end of Genesis chapter 3, shalom has been shattered. It has been broken. Every part of it has been shattered. Every piece of it has been broken. The beautiful creation has been marred. The image of God has been deeply scarred and broken and marred. What was shalom has now become difficult and harsh and hard. And the symbol of all of this were the thorns that filled up the earth. And that would exist until one day there appeared a servant, humble, bruised, battered, broken not even recognizable as a man. And upon his head was the symbol of all of that brokenness, a crown of thorns. And three days later on Sunday morning, Shalom was back. God had brokered a peace. And that's what we read in Ephesians 2. Christ 
has made a peace. He himself is our peace. And he has extended that peace to you and to me. And that peace should mark our lives. It should mark our families. It should mark our marriages. It should mark the way we treat one another. It should mark how we live together as the body of Christ with our head, our leader, the Prince of Peace. And the reason that Paul writes this to us is because one day our leader, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, is going to bring that peace to the earth. And not just to the earth, one day that peace is going to reign in heaven. The entire universe is going to be restored to the peace it enjoyed before the fall of man on earth and before the fall of Satan in heaven. That's what Ephesians 1.9 is all about. And that's why so often in the book of Ephesians, he looks at us and he says things like this, grace and peace be to you. At the end of the book, he says, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he talks to us and he says, there ought to be peace that rules in your heart. There ought to be peace that rules in your relationships. We just saw a section of Ephesians where God is talking to the deepest and to the most significant relationships in our lives. The relationship we have with our spouse, the relationship we have with our children, the relationship we have as employers with our employees and, and, and with, uh, with our employers. And God says, you know what should mark all of that as Christians? Here's what should mark all of that. Sweet shalom. But the reality is, just like we saw and celebrated today and observed today and memorialized today, peace doesn't exist on the earth, does it? Hostilities exist in the words of the declaration of war that took place on December the 8th, 1941. Our president at that time said, there is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. They are under attack. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us, God. That was 1941. How many other conflicts have happened since then? I mean, we're in the middle of one right now. And so as the owners of that peace, as the stewards of it, you and I need to understand how we can maintain that peace and how we can advance that peace because it is under attack. It is under attack. All week long, whether you knew it or not, there has been an enemy eroding that shalom in every way possible. He's been eroding it in your heart. He's been eroding it in your marriage. He's been eroding it in the relations you have with other people. He's been, he's been, he's been eroding it, frankly, in your thinking about God. You have an enemy that is alive and well, and he is incredibly bent. He is incredibly determined to bring a war to your soul with the goal of shattering that shalom. So how do we defend ourselves? How do we, what has God given to us that will allow us to fortify our mind, to guard 
our heart and to strengthen our resolve. How do we fight to win in the battle for our soul? You know, most of us, when we think about battles, we don't really think about them unless we're in them. And so when we come to a passage like Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and we think about armor, I mean, let's just be frank. When you think about armor, what do you think about? I've got a picture that I want to show you that, that sort of describes for me how most of us think about spiritual armor. I mean, we got this really cool wooden sword, and we got a cape. For years and years, I uh, served at a Christian camp and um, I did a, a leadership uh, program. Beth and I were privileged for more than 20 years to do leadership uh, training for juniors and seniors in high school. But while we were there, our kids would go along with us. So our kids were raised in camp. And my son could not wait to get to camp because every week at camp, he would trot down to the craft shop and he would, he would buy a wooden sword or a wooden axe, or a wooden shield, and he would paint it up, and he would put a jewel on it, and that would be the weapon of the week. If I had a dollar for every sword that kid brought home, I mean, we had a whole arsenal of stuff. And I think sometimes when we think about spiritual warfare, the way that Paul is talking about it, and when we think about the armor of God, the way we think about the armor of God is the way my son would think about going out and getting a wooden sword or a cardboard shield. And it's no wonder that the shalom in our life, the ministry that God intends for our life to have, is shattered so frequently and so regularly by the attacks that Satan brings against us. You know, there is an armor that God has, and and I'm going to give you another picture, and it's more like this. This is what God intends for you to think about when he talks to you about the armor that we're going to be reading about here in chapter 6, verse 10. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to survey verses 10 all the way down to verse 13, and I'd like to show you four things that will get us set to look at these pieces of armor that are so critical to what God has called us to do as we carry out and as we maintain this amazing peace that is ours. Let's begin by reading the text together. Finally, and let's stop there for a minute, and let's acknowledge something. Paul is not saying finally in the way that you and I often use that term. He's not saying, okay, let's wrap it up. We're coming to the final lap. Hang in there. Give me just a few more minutes. I got a few more things to say, and then we'll be done. That's not the idea behind the word finally. The word finally here in the text is actually Paul saying, I'm getting to the most important part of the letter. Everything I have been talking about, all of the information I gave you in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the two prayers that I prayed that God would enlighten your eyes so you could understand that information and receive it, and then that he would enable you to live within the light of all of that information. And then in chapters 4 and 5, everything that I've been talking to you about a worthy walk Everything has been going somewhere, and we are finally here. In other words, Paul is saying, this is the climactic moment in the letter. This is where I've been going, finally. So what is it 
that Paul has been driving to, that he's been talking about. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now we won't take the time this morning, but for those of you who've been following along in the book of Ephesians, everything he talks about here in these verses, he's talked about earlier. This power that he talks about, this strength, you met that in chapter 1. The schemes of the devil, the evil day, you met that in chapter 5. The rulers, the principalities, the cosmic powers in this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil, you met them in chapter 3. Heavenly places, you've met that realm. We've been talking about that realm, Paul said, for the entire book. That's the realm where all of this is taking place. So what does Paul want us to know in these verses? First of all, he wants us to know that there is a pervasive conflict that is going on around us all of the time. So let's talk about the reality of the conflict. Five times in uh, verse 12, six times in verse 10, 11, and 12, there is a word that shows up. It's the word against. You can see it. Let's look at that in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So very clearly, Paul wants you to realize that as you live your life every day, you are in a struggle and you have someone who is coming against you. And he's coming against you in this way. He's coming against you with a word that Paul uses that only occurs one time in the New Testament. It's the word wrestling. You can see it in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul says when when you think about this conflict and the reality of the conflict, there is a force that is opposed to you. It is against you, and it is against you in this way. This enemy wants to come against you, and it wants to wrestle you. The idea here in this word is the hand-to-hand combat that wrestlers would do when they would try to put their hands on each other and throw each other down. In other words, Paul is saying, this is not a war that you're going to fight from a long distance away. This is not a war that you're going to hide behind in a bunker and you're going to move little pieces on a computer screen and stuff's going to happen. This is a very personal, up-close, in-your-face war. You have an unseen enemy who has a very, very determined goal, and that is to throw you down from the worthy walk that God called you to live in chapter 4, verse 1, and has been giving you instructions about how to do that. You have an enemy that is going to come in, and he's going to come right up personal, and he's going to try to put a hand on you so that he can wrestle you down. The realm of all of this, Paul says, is this. We do not, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual realm, not a natural realm. This is not like earthly conflicts fought with earthly weapons. This is happening in the realm 
that Paul has been talking about. Remember, we talked about the fact that the book of Ephesians is talking about two very real realms. And they're superimposed on top of each other. There is the realm that you and I do everyday life in, the realm that we got up in this morning and we got dressed in and we got in our car and we went off to church and tomorrow morning we're going to get up and we're going to go off to work and and our kids are going to go to school and they're going to have volleyball games and soccer games and all other kinds of things that happen in this realm. But Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians, there is another realm and it is, it is superimposed on this realm and your natural eye is not equipped to see it. But that doesn't mean it's not there. And every once in a while in the scripture, as we talked about this way back at the beginning, God opens our natural eye and we have a little insight into that realm. Do you remember, for example, the time in the Old Testament where the prophet had a servant and he would go out and he was worried because the king kept sending forces and he would send 50 soldiers and then another 50 would come and here's this prophet and this little servant and they're in their, in their small home and the servant is petrified that these armed forces are coming and the prophet says to him, go outside and open your eyes. And he goes outside and he looks at the hills and the hills are blazing with light. And those light represented the heavenly angelic host that for the first time, for that brief moment, he could see. We are given insights like this in the book of Daniel. We see insights in the book of Revelation, and all of a sudden we realize there is another realm, and we are in that realm, and it is every bit as real as the realm we're in right now. It's superimposed. And I gave you that sort of shocking thought that if for just a moment... God could equip your eyes so that you could see everything going on in that realm. It might surprise you to see what is sitting in these chairs with us this morning. And Paul says, that's the realm where all of this enemy is gathered. That's the realm where this enemy is coming against you. And the reason for this war, the reason for this conflict is that this enemy is determined to stop what God is displaying. In the book of Ephesians, we read that God is adopting a family of holy and blameless people. And Satan is determined to defile you. If God wants you to be holy and blameless, Satan is going to marshal his forces to come and make sure you are defiled as part of his family. God is calling together a people and properly arranging them to his son and to one another. And so Satan is coming against that group of people to divide them, to divide them from one another, to divide them from following the Lord. And that's why disunity is such a big deal for Paul in the book of Ephesians. God is building a temple in chapter 2, and his spirit is indwelling that temple, and, and Satan wants to desecrate that temple. He wants to desecrate you. He wants to defile you. He wants to destroy you. But God is faithful, isn't he? And so the first thing Paul wants us to see in verses 10 through 12 is that there is a massive, pervasive conflict that is going on around us all the time. By the way, that should explain things to you. A little light should be going on. That's why I feel like I'm under oppression. Have you ever felt that way? You get up in the morning and it's just like there is this darkness that this this oppression and i i can't seem to get over it i can't seem to get through it 
sometimes, don't you feel this way? Sometimes you feel like your life is a construction site. You ever felt that way? I've got some construction going on in my house right now. So I'm thinking about it. Here you are and, you know, you're building your life. And if you're a construction, you know, if you're into construction and you, you know, 530, you put your tools up, you, you pack your stuff up and you go home and you look at what you've done for the day and you kind of get a little satisfaction out of that. You've overcome obstacles, you've done things. And, and so you load your stuff up and off you go and you come back the next morning and you unload and you start where you left off and you get a little further that day and you pack up at 530 and you, you take off and you do the same thing until the project is done. But what would happen if at 545, after your truck left, another truck pulled up? And a bunch of guys got out of that truck and they had tools and hammers and chisels and they went to your construction site and their mission was to do everything they could to dismantle and tear down everything that you did that day. And if they could tear it down and dismantle it, then their goal was to actually try to tear down and dismantle what you did yesterday. And and men and women, that is exactly what this enemy is about. As God is at work in your life, And as the word of God is at work in your life and God is growing grace in you, there is an enemy who is unpacking their truck and they are pulling out their weapons and they are determined to undo whatever God did. Do you realize that by this time next Sunday, Satan will be hard at work to discredit, to to distance anything that God did in this message in your life today? And we're totally unaware of that. And that's the point. And that's the second thing that that Paul wants you to see. It's not just that there's a conflict, a pervasive conflict going on around us. There is a powerful enemy behind all of that. In verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual force of evil in heavenly places. You know, when you think of the word devil in this text... It literally means adversary. There is someone who is hostile to you. He's your adversary. And with him are, are, are forces that are marked in three ways in this text. Look at verse 12. This, this enemy, these forces are powerful and numerous. They are principalities, powers, rulers. These are all terms for power, all terms for authority over this age. This is exactly what we saw in chapter 3, verse 10, when God is holding up the church and he is saying to these powers, this is the display of my wisdom. You say, well, would God do that? You already know that from the book of Job. You remember Job chapter 1? I mean, here is a righteous man and, and he has no clue what's going on in heaven. He has no clue what's going on in that realm that we just talked about. But in chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's like the author of Job says to us, now gather around, I want to tell you a story. I want to bring you in so that you begin to understand something you're about to see. And all of a sudden, we're brought into this realm, and God is on his throne, and somebody is forcibly presented to him and having to give an account of what he's been up to, and that person is the devil. And so he gives his account to God. I've been going up and down throughout the earth, and I've been 
going here and there. And, and when he's all done, God says to him, so I have a question for you. Have you considered? And he takes Job and he holds him up in front of the entire universe. Now, Job has no clue this is happening. Okay? But God says to Satan in front of the entire universe, have you considered my servant, Job? And Satan says, well, actually, we all know Job. Everybody here knows Job. And, and we all know why Job does what he does. Everybody knows why Job does what he does. And the implication is Job does what he does because he gets what he gets. And he gets what he gets from you because you get what you get. Job gets what he gets because he gets it from you and you give it to Job because you get what you get. And so God looks at Satan and there is a sort of like the equivalent of a cosmic declaration of war. And God says to Satan, okay, you can can do anything you want to him. You just can't touch him. Job has no clue. He gets up, just like he got up every other day of his life. And by the end of that day, everything he knew was gone. His possessions, his fields, his treasures, his children. And the text, as we follow Job's story, tells us that he did not sin with his lips. So we're brought back into the realm that we're talking about. And God says, so, how'd it go? I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, Satan is shamed. I mean, he's standing there absolutely shamed in front of the entire universe. On this little backwater planet, somewhere buried in the universe, on the surface of that planet is a tiny little being that can't even jump more than about five or six inches. I don't know how much Job could jump. Maybe back then they could jump a lot higher than that. But they couldn't jump very high. And this little, tiny, insignificant creature, nothing compared to the beauty and the, and, and the power of Satan, had not sinned with his lips. And Satan says, okay, I, you know what? Skin for skin, everything will a man give for his life. And God says, all right, round two. You want round two? You can do anything you want. You can touch him, but you can't take his life. And so by the end of round two, Job's body is so full of disease and vileness, you can hardly recognize him as a man. He's sitting out on an ash heap, and his wife is so broken and so upset and so grief-stricken that she comes to him and says, how long are you going to keep leading our family to serve a God who does this to us? Why don't you just curse God and be done with it? And Job says this, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You say, that, that's a great story. No, that's your story. <clears throat> it's your story. 
That happens more than you think. That's why it's in our Bible. These enemies are powerful and numerous. They are wicked and depraved, and they are cunning and deceptive. They have schemes. You can see that in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. They are powerful and numerous and cunning and deceptive. And if you want a word to describe what they are like, here is the word. They are evil. They are wicked. The idea there is they are depraved. They are perverted. They are morally incapable of right thinking. The word there is porneia. We get our word for immorality. They are immoral in every way. And they are very good at what they do. They have schemes. The idea there is strategies or methods that they use. And it's plural, so that tells us that there are more than one of them. There are many of these schemes, and they are known to us. I mean, the Scripture tells us how Satan has used these schemes. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis chapter 3, he used a scheme. He used a strategy to deceive Eve. And he'll use that same strategy on you. In Genesis chapter 3, he used a scheme to distance Adam from God. When Adam should have been running from God, he was hiding from God. And he does the same thing with us. In Genesis 4, he used a scheme to divide Cain and Abel that ended up in the murder of Abel. In 1 Kings 18, he used a scheme to discourage Elijah. In, first, uh, in Joshua chapter 7, he used temptation and worldly pleasure to deceive Achan. And in 2 Timothy 4.10, he repeated that scheme with a man named Demas. He defiles and defrauds us like he did Saul. And then he defeats us with moral temptation like he did with David. I mean, if you go into the trophy room that Satan has mounted of the people that he has used these schemes successfully on, you see people that you would, would be amazed to see there, and Satan is determined to do the same for you. So that brings us to the third thing that Paul wants us to know here. If there is this pervasive conflict and this powerful enemy, what has God given us? by which we can stand, because that's the whole point here, right? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to stand against all of this. There is someone coming against you, and with Him come innumerable, wicked, powerful, scheming forces. And God is saying to you, there is a way for you to stand. So that when this enemy comes and attempts to lay a hand on your life to knock you down from the worthy walk, there is a way for you to stand. So what is that way? And that's the third thing that we see in the text, and that is this. There is personal protection, amazing personal protection available to us, and it's described this way. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. When Paul was writing this paragraph, we know from earlier in the letter in chapter 3, and we see it again in chapter 6, 
he is writing as a prisoner of the Lord. And in chapter 6, he talks about his chains. When Paul was writing this, he was chained to two Roman soldiers. If you know anything about the Roman Empire, this was the finest military fighting force on the planet. And Paul is chained to two of the finest examples of the military might of Rome. And when he wants to describe the strength that God has given you and the protection that God has made available to you in this conflict, he looks around and he draws from the example of two things. Number one, he draws the example of what he's about to tell us from the armor of a Roman soldier. And then he draws that example not just from the armor of a Roman soldier, but he reminds us that it is the armor that God himself wears in Isaiah chapter 11. And in Isaiah 59, you see God wearing every piece of this armor. And that's what God wants you to see as he talks to you. Because when you look at the, at the enemy and its goal, it's like, how in the world are we going to be able to stand? I mean, I, you know, I think about Eve. I think about Adam. I think about Cain. I, I think about David. I, I think about Achan. I think about uh, Demas. I think about Peter. I mean, Peter was thrown down for a while from his worthy walk. So what chance do I have? What chance really is there for me in my marriage and with my kids and with my parents and in my job and in my church? What chance is there really, pastor, for me to be able to stand? And Paul's answer to you would be, there is every chance because there is an armor that God has given to you. And so notice the source of this armor. It is the armor of God. It is the armor that God himself wears, and it is the armor that he has forged and made for you. You got this armor at salvation. That's why Paul is going to talk about putting it on. Because you already have it. You already own truth. You already own righteousness. You already own peace. You already have a helmet of salvation. You already know the word of God. Your eyes have been opened so that you can see and understand it. You have the shield of faith that God has given to you. You own this armor. It is the armor that belongs to God and God has given it to you and he gave it to you when you were saved. Which means that if you're a believer this morning, you already own the armor. You own every piece of it, and you aren't missing anything. And every piece that God gave you is fully functional. You don't have a defective piece of armor anywhere in your arsenal. That's the idea when Paul says this armor is the armor of God. The nature of the armor is that it is full and complete. It is majestic in its appearance. It's God's own armor. It's marvelous in its completeness, and it's matchless in its effectiveness. This armor will be what God uses to help you stand because it's the armor he himself wears. It's the armor that Jesus wore when he stood before Satan, and three times he engaged in hand-to-hand combat with him. This is the armor we're talking about. And the function of all of this armor is to give you invincible protection. So that brings us to the final thing this morning, and that is simply this. So how do we use the armor? I mean, I get get the pervasive conflict. I, I, I see that. I see this 
immense enemy, this wicked, powerful enemy that's coming into my life every day to try to tear down what God has been doing, what God has been building in my marriage, in my family, in in my relationships. I see this powerful enemy, and I'm so thankful to hear about this armor. But frankly, I, I hear about the armor. I read about it. It's not the first time I've read Ephesians 6, 10, all the way down to verse 20. But to be honest, the armor doesn't seem to be doing its job. And here's how I know. Look at the defeat I had over here. And look at this thing that happened over here. And look at this temptation that snuck through. And look at this arrow that pierced me. And so how do I use this armor? Either I didn't get all of the armor. No, you got all of the armor, Paul says. Or maybe the armor isn't working. Well, no, the armor works. There's there's no defectiveness in the armor God gave you. So then how do I use this armor? And so Paul says, here's what you have to do. This armor is designed to help you hold your ground, to stand. That's the idea of stand. It's to, when somebody comes against you, you aren't going to back down. You aren't going to cede the ground. You aren't going to say, okay, you're too big, you're too powerful, you're too evil, I can't, I can't hold the ground, so you know what? I'm just going to go, and I'm going to go find another hill, and I'm going to hide there until the battle is over. This armor is intended to help you do something that God told you about your worthy walk. You have been gaining ground as you have been living out a worthy walk, and God is saying to you, that ground that is now marked by Shalom, hold it. Defend it. Don't give it up. Don't give it over. Well, how am I going to do that? And Paul's answer is, well, the first thing that you have to do is you have to avail yourself of the right strength. You don't have the kind of strength that is going to help you hold that ground. You need the Lord's strength. And that's why he says, be strong in the Lord. The idea there is be strengthened with a strength that belongs to God. Now, you already know about the strength. Because way back in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said in his prayer, I want you to have eyes that God opens so that you would know three things. And the third thing is this amazing strength, this amazing power that God has that he makes available to you. And he says, you've already experienced this power. You saw the power when it raised Christ from the dead and you experienced the power when it raised you in chapter two from spiritual blindness and from spiritual death. That's the power you want. I mean, seriously, you and I oftentimes lose the battle with the devil because we go in our own strength and we go in our own might. And and it's like, you know what? I can handle this. I'll just say no. How many times have you fallen to a temptation and the entire time you were falling into that temptation, your heart was saying, no, 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 no. And you ended up there anyway. It's not your strength, your strength, my strength. We don't have the capacity to stand against this enemy. We have to run to God and we have to be strengthened with his strength. So that brings me to the final thing, and that is this. What is that strength? How do I strengthen myself with the strength that God has given? And the answer is the armor. The armor is the strength. It is this belt that Paul is talking about. 
It is this breastplate that Paul is talking about. It's these amazing shoes that we're going to read about and study together. It's this helmet. It's the shield that does amazing things. And it's this sword that we hold in our hands. Paul says, you want the strength of God, there it is. Take it up. Put it on and take it up. And men and women, as we live life together, isn't it true that oftentimes we don't think about this armor? We, we live in brokenhearted depression and sadness over the spiritual defeats that come almost daily into our life, and we beg God to deliver us from them. We, we pray, God, please forgive me, and God does forgive us, and God gives us mercy, and it is so wonderful. I would never want you to leave this uh, room this morning doubting that God delights in showing mercy even in our worst defeats. And we all live there. I live there. You live there. And we get up off of our knees after confessing our sin and we say to the Lord, I will never, ever do that, I promise. Please forgive me. And then next week we're back and, and we've committed that same sin and we commit it over and over and over to the point that we're so embarrassed we don't even want to talk to God about it anymore. It's like, God, I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm here, I'm asking, I'm begging, I'm trying. I get up, I have all this determination. I've got all these schemes and strategies. I've, I've put all these little defenses in place. I've got all my little armor on and, and it's like the arrow got right through and I'm back here needing more grace and more mercy. And I would suggest to you that maybe all the things we're doing are like that little wooden sword my son built at the craft store or a cardboard shield that we've got all the Bible verses painted on, like there's nothing getting through here. And the next thing we know, there's an arrow that pierced us, and we're back, and we have to come back to God. And it's like, God, I don't know what to do. And God says, there's nothing you can do against this enemy. And that's the problem. (laughs) I'm going to do it for you, and I'm going to do it through the armor I've given you. And so I would submit to you that what's life-changing about this is not so much that we're going to find new and better ways to strategize against the enemy. We're going to find out how to actually live in the strength that we've already experienced. You did not save yourself. You didn't wake up one morning and, and open your eyes and decide that you were going to believe. God had to do something. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 is such an amazing chapter. God gave you life. God quickened you. God opened your eyes. Just like Paul talked to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4. God opened your eyes so that all of a sudden you believe what, what you never would have believed in your own strength. We talked about this in an earlier message. I mean, just try it on tomorrow morning at work. Go into work and say, you know, I had the most amazing thing happen in my church yesterday. And people are like, oh, you, you go to church? Oh, yeah, I don't talk about it a lot, but yeah, I go to church. But something amazing happened at church yesterday. What happened? Well, this, this family got up and, and they were sharing with our church how one of their daughters is with child. And it's amazing how it happened. There was a dream. She had a dream. And an angel came. And now she's going to have a child. When you say that at work tomorrow, what's everybody going to do? 
They're going to look at you and they might not say anything. But when you go, they're going to go to the break room and they're going to say a lot. Right? Because nobody's going to believe that. But can I suggest something? You actually believe that. And I mean, you don't just believe it a little bit. You believe it with your whole soul. You believe that an angel from God appeared to a young Hebrew virgin named Mary. And when she got up and said, I'm going to have a son and there is no earthly father. I am still a virgin. I'm going to give birth to a son. And and the Holy Spirit is the one that created that son in my womb. You actually believe that. And you're convinced of it. How did that happen? The Holy Spirit opened your eyes so that you could see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what else you believe about that son? You believe that son never sinned. Never. Not in word, not in deed, not in motive, not in thought. You actually believe that. You actually believe that he died a sinless sacrifice and that he rose again on the third day. You actually believe that three days after he went into a tomb, he was raised from the dead. You actually believe that. And you actually believe that he is as alive today as he was when he walked on the air 2,000 years ago. And you even believe more than that. You believe that he is the second member of the Trinity who existed before the foundations of the world were ever laid. You believe that. How did you believe that? God, open your eyes. How are you going to use this armor? The same way. God is going to open your eyes. And he is going to help you to use the armor. That's why this series is so liberating and why it's so important. I hope that you're looking forward to it. As we close, let's ask God to help us to rejoice in this amazing provision, this strength that he has given to us as we strive to win the war for our soul that he has already won for us. Father, we come to you with gratitude and gratefulness for what you have done and are doing in our midst. Lord, we are so thankful that you have, in the midst of our enemies, given to us an amazing armor. Lord, forgive us for trying to replace that with our own human armor, our own schemes, our own strategies, and using our own strength in the war against sin that so easily besets us. Lord, we suffer so many setbacks, but we're thankful that even in all of those setbacks, you are more than our conqueror, and we are more than conquerors, because greater is he that is in us than the one that is in the world. So, Lord, give us victory that comes from you and not from ourselves. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.